This episode features discussions of animal testing that some may find disturbing. Caution is advised for listeners under 13. It was a humid night in Honolulu on December 8, 1899. The air inside the cramped flophouse stank of sweat and urine. Over a dozen Chinese immigrants slept shoulder to shoulder on a bed of straw accompanied by swarms of flies. Most were strangers to each other. They'd arrived several weeks ago on a boat and found employment in Honolulu's kitchens, stores, and hotels. That evening, a voice cried out from the darkness in pain. Yuk Hoi, a 40-year-old bookkeeper, swatted the air in delirium. His roommate, Fung, went to investigate. Fung found Yuk Hoi drenched in sweat and running a high fever. Fung said Hoi was trembling, like the branches of a tree in thunder and lightning gone crazy. Fung hoisted the sick man over his shoulder. He carried him down the street to the office of Dr. Lee Kai Fai, a local physician. Dr. Fai checked Hoi's pulse. It was racing. The doctor cut open Hoi's shirt while Fung tried not to gag. Hoi's body was covered with black spots and open sores. He tried to speak, but instead of words, his mouth released a gurgle of foaming blood. Dr. Fai suspected the worst, but he had to be sure. He removed Hoi's pants and found what he was looking for. There, on Hoi's thigh, was a lump the size of a chicken egg. The doctor stumbled back in terror. He'd watched this disease kill hundreds of people back in China. He'd even fled the country, hoping to escape the carnage. But now, it was here. The Black Death had reached America. When our bodies fail, we trust doctors to diagnose the problem. But medicine isn't always an exact science. Sometimes it's a guessing game with life-or-death stakes. This is Medical Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Every Tuesday, we'll look at the strangest real-life medical cases in history and the experts who raced against the clock to solve them. As we follow these high-intensity stories, we'll explore medical research that might solve the puzzle. You can find episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is our second episode on bubonic plague, the lethal disease that killed millions in the 6th and 14th centuries. In some places, it eliminated 9 out of every 10 people who caught it. Last week, we looked at the devastation in Europe caused by the first and second outbreaks. This week, we'll trace the third plague as it touches down in America. We'll follow the scientists who tried to avert catastrophe and see what might happen if the plague ever returns. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Have you ever spotted McDonald's hot, crispy fries right as they're being scooped into the carton? And time just stands Still. This episode is brought to you by the Weather Channel. The key to solving any mystery? Smart decisions based on the facts. 
In the case of the weather's effect on your well-being, turn to the Weather Channel app. It clues you in on how weather shapes your mood, health, and productivity with insights built on reliable forecast data to help you thrive. Because mystery belongs in true crime, not weather. Be a force of nature with the Weather Channel app. The Black Death remains history's most terrifying disease. In the 6th and 14th centuries, it exploded across Europe and Asia in a blaze of destruction. Victims of bubonic plague suddenly developed a fever, chills, and a violent headache. In some cases, within hours of the first symptoms, painful red lumps, called buboes, appeared on the armpits and groin. They multiplied as the bacteria spread from one lymph node to another. Some patients became delirious. Others slipped into a coma. Five days after the onset, one out of every two people died. If the bacterium found its way into a patient's lungs, they might spend as many as three days coughing and vomiting blood before their demise. When Dr. Lee Kai-Fi looked down at the sick man on his table, he knew what he was up against. In 1899, there was still no cure for plague, no effective treatment. Minutes later, Dr. Fai watched as Yuk Hoi drifted into a coma. The terrified physician phoned an English doctor named George Herbert. Dr. Herbert was on the Hawaii Board of Health and could alert the authorities of the danger they faced. Dr. Herbert arrived an hour later with two of his colleagues. They gathered round while Dr. Fai dissected Yuk Hoi's body under a flickering lantern. In broken English, the physician confirmed the diagnosis. Yuk Hoi had died of plague. In the next four days, the authorities learned of six more deaths in Honolulu's Chinatown following similar symptoms. The State Board of Health launched into action and roped off that part of the city. The quarantine trapped 10,000 people inside an eight-block radius. To enforce it, the board placed armed guards outside the perimeter. Meanwhile, doctors went from house to house, drenching the floors with disinfectants like phenol, a highly corrosive chemical. Phenol was one of the few things they knew would kill bacteria. At the time, most doctors believed plague was carried on dust that could be inhaled or rubbed into wounds. Meanwhile, local residents were furious for being held captive. They blamed Dr. Fai for the quarantine. Shortly after it was enforced, a mob of people stormed his office. Fai barely managed to climb out the window and escape with his life. Over the next five days, health inspectors discovered several more dead bodies inside the zone. While the Board of Health debated what to do next, a teenager died of plague on Ivalet Road, two blocks outside of Chinatown. The quarantine had already failed. The plague flared again on Christmas Eve. Without any better solutions, authorities decided on the nuclear option, fire. Nathaniel Emerson, a senior board member, proclaimed, I am willing to burn anything and do anything that is necessary. On December 31st, 1899, a team of firefighters surrounded the two-story home of a plague victim in Chinatown. They doused the interior with kerosene and lit a match. Targeted blazes continued over the next few weeks, 
and by January 20, 1900, the entire district was a smoldering wreck. Carol Ann Benedict, a modern-day historian, believes this outbreak of plague traveled to Hawaii from China. For a century, China had seen sporadic outbreaks in rural provinces, and in the 1890s, it morphed into a devastating pandemic. In the port city of Guangzhou, China, one doctor estimated that 174,000 people died within months. From there, it hitched a ride on an opium trading vessel and reached Hong Kong in 1894. Merchant ships carried the disease to India and Indonesia, where a large portion of the approximately 15 million deaths occurred. Fearing a repeat of the 14th century, European doctors traveled to China, hoping modern medicine could stop the pandemic in its tracks. This time, doctors had a new tool at their disposal, bacteriology. In 1876, the 32-year-old German physician Robert Koch discovered that these single-celled microbes could cause severe illness. At the time, Koch was investigating an outbreak of anthrax, a disease lethal in humans as well as livestock. Koch found that bacteria in the blood of infected sheep could sicken other animals. So he developed a way to isolate the microorganisms and grow them in a lab for further study. One of Koch's students was a French scientist named Alexandra Yersin. After trekking across modern-day Vietnam, he traveled to Hong Kong on June 15, 1894, just as China's plague crisis reached its peak. Yersin wanted to identify its cause and find a cure. Yersin built a straw hut and a laboratory using whatever tools he could procure. For research material, he bribed sailors to bring him the bodies of plague victims who died in the hospital. Yersin cut open their buboes and removed the tissue inside. After diluting it with water, he stained the samples with dyes that stuck to the outside of bacteria. A few days later, he checked his samples under a microscope. Thousands of reddish-pink, rod-shaped cells, like tiny grains of rice, stood out against the background. Yersin was the first to definitively glimpse mankind's greatest enemy up close. Scientists later named the bacteria Yersinia pestis in his honor. But in 1894, much about the microorganism remained unknown. The most pressing question was how it spread so easily. This breakthrough came at the hands of a 39-year-old French bacteriologist named Paul-Louis Simon. In 1897, Simon went to Bombay, India, where an outbreak of plague raged. He was particularly interested in learning if the disease could jump from animals to people, a circumstance known as zoonosis. Simone had noticed that many outbreaks began with dead rodents. Before a family died, dozens of sick rats stumbled out of a home and into the streets. Dr. Simone suspected the vermin were responsible for plague, but he couldn't say why. As Simone treated more patients, his theory evolved. He noticed during the early stages of the disease, plague victims exhibited something called a flictina. 
This was a small, fluid-filled blister located near the patient's first bubo, and it contained extremely large concentrations of bacteria. Because the blister appeared so early, Simone believed this was the point of infection. Perhaps the germs found their way in through a laceration or the bite of an insect. As Simone thought more about the culprit, his mind returned to rats. The more he considered it, the more obvious it became. Rats were covered with fleas. The rat flea is a parasite the size of a sesame seed that lives off blood. When its host dies, the flea leaps great distances to find a new victim. And in the absence of another rat, it will feed on other animals, including humans. To test his theory, Simone needed fleas. So, in June 1897, he visited the homes of plague victims and collected any dead rats he could find. Then, he dunked them in soapy water and picked the bugs off with his bare hands. He dissected the dead fleas under a microscope. Sure enough, their stomachs were full of Yersinia pestis, plague bacteria. But Simone wanted a bit more evidence before he published his results. In the spring of 1898, Simone traveled to Karachi in present-day Pakistan to research another outbreak. There, he captured a sick rat, one whose fur was crawling with fleas. Simone constructed a cage with two compartments. He placed the sick rat on one side and the healthy rat on the other. They were separated by a wire mesh through which only fleas could travel. The sick rat died within two days. However, the healthy rat seemed fine, at least through the first four days. But on the fifth day, he noticed the healthy rat was acting sluggish. It died the following afternoon. Simone's autopsy revealed that the rat had buboes and its organs were infected with Yersinia pestis. Simone's discovery proved that rats could transmit plague to other vermin and people via fleas. This was a huge problem because rats went everywhere that humans did. They could hide undetected in homes and stow aboard ships. One of those boats reached Honolulu in 1899. The government nearly burned down the entire island to stop the outbreak. Now, it was only a matter of time before another infected ship landed in North America. Many prayed it didn't happen on the mainland. Coming up, bubonic plague reaches San Francisco. Parkasters, if you're fascinated by the mysterious and manipulative side of true crime, you'll love the stories told in the Spotify original from Parkast, Cults. Every Tuesday, step inside the minds of those who led and followed the most controversial, radical, and sometimes deadly organizations in history. Go beyond the headlines and discover the foundation behind notorious cults like Jim Jones and People's Temple, the Rajneesh Movement, Nexium, and more. Each episode of Cults is full of illuminating details of their improbable origins and sinister intentions. Doomsday Predictions, 
religious beliefs, extraterrestrial orders. Find out what really happens inside a cult. Follow the ParCast series Cults free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes air weekly every Tuesday. Now, back to the story. In 1894, an outbreak of plague burned across Asia and the Indian subcontinent, killing millions. Flea-infested rats hid on trading ships and carried the disease to faraway places like Hawaii. And in 1900, an infected vessel arrived in San Francisco. The Bayside City was built by greed and the promise of easy money. In 1848, the discovery of gold sparked an influx of treasure seekers, and between 1849 and 1856, the population exploded from 1,000 to more than 50,000 people. In China, people heard stories of a land overflowing with precious metal. People left their families in search of an easy fortune. But when they arrived, Chinese immigrants became a class of exploited, low-wage workers. Racist hiring practices allowed American employers like railroad companies to pay immigrants meager wages for dangerous work. Meanwhile, Caucasian laborers resented the Chinese for taking jobs they believed were theirs. Xenophobia pervaded every aspect of U.S. politics. In the 1870s, violent mobs looted Chinese settlements all over California. In the following years, Congress banned immigration from China and required Chinese expats to carry a certificate of residence at all times. Violators faced deportation or prison. City ordinances forced more than 20,000 Asian immigrants to live in one part of the city known as Chinatown. It was a cramped and squalid place, overflowing with feces and vermin. The perfect breeding ground for plague. In late February 1900, 41-year-old Wong Chut King awoke to the sound of scurrying rats in his walls. His head throbbed, and his groin swelled painfully. King visited a Chinese doctor who concluded that his patient had contracted a sexually transmitted disease. Like many of his fellow laborers, King frequented Chinatown's brothels, so he didn't question the diagnosis. The doctor prescribed medicinal herbs and told King to sleep it off. That evening, King's temperature spiked. He vomited repeatedly and fell in and out of consciousness. Five days later, on March 6th, King's roommates carried him to a coffin shop, where he died. Upon close examination, a city health inspector noticed a black bubo on King's groin. He was immediately alarmed, and the San Francisco Board of Health called an emergency meeting. At dawn, the chief of police received orders to rope off Chinatown. Rumors spread that law enforcement planned to burn down the district, just like they had in Hawaii. People slipped through the quarantine in droves to hide out wherever they could. Health officials searched inside each building for signs of the infection. Business in San Francisco screeched to a halt as Chinese cooks, cleaners, and other workers were forced home by police with clubs. The backlash was tremendous. Newspapers sided with the city's commercial interests. 
they printed articles condemning the quarantine as a ploy to trick taxpayers into funding the Board of Health. They demanded proof of King's diagnosis. The one person who could provide that information was 39-year-old Dr. Joseph Kinyun, a rising star in the Marine Hospital Service. The MHS was a precursor to the U.S. Public Health Service, a division of the Department of Health and Human Services. Dr. Kinyun ran an MHS bacteriology lab on San Francisco's Angel Island. When he checked King's tissue samples under a microscope, he saw rod-shaped microorganisms. But the only way to be sure it was plague at the time was to inject live animals with King's blood and weight. Meanwhile, politics moved faster than science. Businesses pressed the mayor for action and threatened lawsuits demanding reimbursement for lost income. 48 hours after establishing the quarantine, the City Board of Health called it off. The very next day, Kinyun's test subjects died. His worst fears were confirmed. Their blood was teeming with Yersinia pestis. But when Kinyun announced his results, no one believed him. The San Francisco Chronicle ran false headlines proclaiming, no plague is found. The press mocked Kinyun's methods and called him a fraud. Even after health inspectors discovered three more corpses in Chinatown, local politicians refused to accept they died of plague. Only one newspaper printed the truth. On March 18, 1900, the New York Journal ran a story titled, The Plague Creeps Into America. William Randolph Hearst, who owned the paper, personally contacted health officers all over the country to warn them of the outbreak. The story shocked other nations as well. Canada and Mexico forced ships coming from California to quarantine and refuse their goods. Faced with a tanking economy, San Francisco's mayor, James Phelan, publicly denied the outbreak, but he quietly ordered officials to clean up Chinatown. Kinyun continued his work in the lab as Caucasian health inspectors kicked in doors and looted apartments. They sprayed Chinese homes with toxic chemicals that left residents gasping for air. After a two-week reign of terror, the mayor declared the city plague-free. But a month later, the deaths resumed. Kinyun wondered if there was any way to stop it. Fortunately, a laboratory on the opposite side of the globe had found a solution. In 1897, a Jewish Ukrainian scientist named Baldemar Hafkin developed a vaccine for plague. He grew Yersinia pestis in a broth and heated it to kill the germs. These dead cells contained proteins that triggered the patient's immune system to produce antibodies. If the person ever became infected, these antibodies could fend off the live bacteria. People injected with Hafkin's vaccine were half as likely to contract the disease. But it came with serious side effects. Vomiting and fever left subjects incapacitated for days, and a small percentage died. Despite the risks, Kinyun wrote to his boss, Surgeon General Walter Wyman. He proposed they inoculate everyone in Chinatown, the whole city, if necessary. And Wyman agreed. 
he shipped 20,000 doses to San Francisco. But a majority of people at this time feared inoculations and their side effects. In the 1800s, many Americans joined anti-vaccination leagues. Thousands of parents pulled their children out of school to prevent mandatory smallpox shots, which they claimed were toxic. In Chinatown, the mistreatment by white health officers led to further hostility toward Dr. Kinyun's team. Many suspected that these vaccinations were a secret Caucasian plot to poison Chinese immigrants. Fearing a riot, Kinyun told his men to cease the injections. Next, Kinyun tried issuing a travel ban to prevent the disease from spreading. He ordered inspectors to detain anyone with Chinese or Japanese heritage trying to leave California. Within days, federal judge William Morrow struck down this action as unconstitutional since it only applied to certain races. Again, Kinyun changed tactics. He appealed to the California Board of Health, which ordered another quarantine. On May 29, 1900, more than 100 police officers surrounded Chinatown. They sealed it off with wooden fences and barbed wire. The quarantine was racist by design. It zigzagged around buildings occupied by Asian tenants while leaving white properties untouched. Rumors flew that Kinyun planned to move the entire population to a prison camp. Their fears were justified. Kinyun actually rented several warehouses for that sort of purpose, although he never used them. Meanwhile, many white politicians called for the mayor to burn Chinatown to the ground. The quarantine choked off tourism and trade. Hunger and crime ran rampant. Outside the cordon, the president of San Francisco's Chamber of Commerce offered Kinyun a bribe. In exchange for, quote, large and handsome presence, he asked Kinyun to take down the walls and restart the economy. Kinyun was disgusted at this proposal. He couldn't understand why people treated plague with a business-as-usual attitude. He wrote, It appears that the commercial interests of San Francisco are more dear to the inhabitants than the preservation of human life. Kinyun was right. The disruption in San Francisco irked Governor Henry Gage. Gage rose to power with the help of railroad magnates, and he knew what would happen if plague shut down California's economy. Furthermore, Gage had a deep distrust of science and Kinyun. After berating the Board of Health for their actions, he sent a letter to Secretary of State John Hay. In it, Gage accused Kinyun of orchestrating, quote, a plague fake. Governor Gage threw his weight behind a lawsuit against Kinyun, and the judge ruled in his favor. After 16 days of quarantine, the walls came down. But Dr. Kinyun had one more trick up his sleeve. On June 16th, he decreed that no one would be allowed to leave California without a certificate proving their health, regardless of ethnicity. Every train would be inspected to make sure of this. The reaction to Kinyun's order was swift and powerful. A coalition of California's politicians traveled to Washington, D.C., where they met with President McKinley. The following day, Surgeon General Wyman sent Kinyun a telegram 
ordering him to stop the inspections immediately. Kinyun's defeat was total. In the following days, the city's Board of Health stopped sharing updates about the outbreak. Kinyun sent weekly descriptions of his patients to a journal called Public Health Reports. But Wyman made sure his results were never published. Meanwhile, Plague's one-sided battle waged on. Up until this point, many top physicians believed Caucasians were immune. They were gravely mistaken. On August 11th, a white man living outside of Chinatown died of the disease. The infection spread to a young nurse named Anna Ruda. She fell ill with stomach pains and had difficulty breathing. Three days later, she died. When the doctors autopsied her lungs, they found plague bacteria everywhere. Panic rippled among the hospital staff. Nurse Ruda was one of the earliest cases of pneumonic plague in San Francisco. Doctors had only just realized that unlike the bubonic variety, pneumonic plague didn't need rats or fleas to spread. If you remember from part one, bubonic plague became pneumonic when the Yersinia pestis bacteria entered a patient's lungs. A person could pass it on to others through a simple cough or sneeze. Kinyun was terrified that cases like this would spark an epidemic. Unfortunately, he was powerless to do anything. He continued to be ridiculed in the press. Governor Gage even accused him of infecting corpses with plague to scare the public. On January 23, 1901, the state legislature passed a resolution calling for Kinyun's removal. They said if that wasn't possible, he should be hanged. Surgeon General Wyman sent an independent team of doctors to verify Kinyun's findings. After conclusively identifying six new plague victims, they reported back to Wyman. Kinyun was right. His urgency was justified. When Governor Gage found out, he was furious. He and several other powerful businessmen left for D.C. that week. In a meeting with Wyman, they promised to deal with the outbreak so long as no one knew about it. There had to be a total media blackout. Wyman agreed to suppress the reports. However, on March 6, 1901, word of this deal leaked to the Sacramento Bee. In a front-page article, they alleged that Wyman's secret pact with Governor Gage was illegal and put residents at risk. For Kinyun, this was too much. His government had willingly suppressed information and risked many lives for the sake of business. In early April, the frustration, along with his deteriorating health, led Kinyun to request a vacation. Instead, Wyman replaced him. One of the few people who cared about stopping the catastrophe was gone. Coming up, Kinyun's replacement confronts a city in denial. And now, back to the story. As the death toll mounted in San Francisco, Dr. Joseph Kinyun's pleas for help went unacknowledged. Newspapers and politicians called the plague a giant hoax. And when an independent team of researchers confirmed the outbreak, Surgeon General Wyman tried to cover it up. 
Kenyon feared the disease would leave San Francisco and spread uncontrollably throughout the nation. Although doctors did have two shields at their disposal. The first was the Hafkeen vaccine, which caused fever, weakness, and even death in some people. And although it gave some immunity, it could eventually wear off. The second was an expensive serum developed by Alexandra Yersin. Serum is the liquid part of your blood that remains after cells and clotting proteins are removed. Yersin found that when he injected horses with Yersinia pestis, their serum contained antibodies that could stop an infection in its tracks. But like the Hafkeen vaccine, its effects were short-lived. Luckily, doctors involved in the fight against the plague had a small stock of this on hand. On April 3rd, Charles Hare, a lab assistant for one of those doctors, contracted the pneumonic form of the disease. Hare was moved to a quarantine room and injected with Yersin's anti-serum. Within a few hours, Hare's fever dropped. It took him a month to recover. Inflammation caused by the bacteria permanently damaged his heart, and for the rest of his life, he felt weak and tired. But at least he was alive. Meanwhile, Kinyoon's eventual replacement in San Francisco was a man named Dr. Rupert Blue. He was an ambitious 33-year-old from North Carolina. Unlike Kinyoon, who had a poor bedside manner, Blue knew how to listen and put people at ease. One of the first things Blue did was move the lab to Chinatown. He wanted to be closer to his patients. Like his predecessors, he suspected that the Chinese were hiding plague victims, but he didn't know why. That summer, Blue hired a Chinese interpreter named Wang Chung, and the two became respected partners. Chung explained why his countrymen were so scared to hand over their corpses. They believed that being mutilated during an autopsy prevented them from reaching heaven. With Chung's help, Blue won over the Chinese community. They told him about new cases, which allowed Blue's team to take tissue samples. In return, the doctor showed his patients respect and humility. Blue was just as scared of the outbreak as Kinyun was, but he couldn't understand why it wasn't getting worse. In China, plague had swept through cities with frightening speed. In America, it came in fits and spurts. For hours, the doctor stared at a map of the city looking for patterns. Each case was marked with a red dot, while black crosses indicated deaths. Most victims were in Chinatown, but some were blocks outside. Not far for a rat to travel. To understand further, Dr. Blue read Paul Louis Simone's paper about vermin fleas carrying plague. Suddenly, he realized what he'd been doing wrong. Instead of spraying houses, he needed to target the rats. Before Blue could act on this hunch, he left San Francisco to deal with a family matter. Meanwhile, California continued to care more about politics than pests. In 1902, San Francisco inaugurated another racist mayor named Eugene Schmitz. He pledged to rid the city entirely of Chinese residents. In order to redirect public attention from his own corruption, Schmitz trash-talked the federal plague program. 
echoing Governor Gage, he declared that he was unalterably convinced that plague had never existed in the city. Schmidt slashed funding to the Plague Commission and shut down all efforts to control the disease. Thanks to him, dozens more died of plague, but the press refused to report it. They couldn't keep the situation under wraps forever. In early November, health officers from across the country met in Connecticut. Accusations flew, and many agreed California's inaction had put the nation in jeopardy. By the end of 1902, San Francisco's known death toll approached 100. Fortunately, it was still contained within the city, and only six cases were pneumonic. But that could change at any second. Surgeon General Wyman downplayed the danger, but he realized people were losing faith in his leadership. Someone had to take control, and the only person who could do it was Rupert Blue. In February 1903, Blue returned to a San Francisco in crisis. Another 41 people had died, and several countries still refused to allow Californian ships into their harbors. State authorities continued to resist his guidance, but now Blue had the political will and money to get the job done. As soon as he arrived, he initiated a massive sanitation campaign. Authorities spread 26,000 pounds of lime powder over every alley in Chinatown. Lime is a preservative that keeps bacteria from growing. To an observer, it looked like fresh snow. Federal health officials went door to door, dousing each home with liquid disinfectant. They removed garbage and warned residents against leaving rotting food in the alleys where it could attract vermin. Blue sent inspectors to examine each building for rodent hideouts. They told landlords to cover dirt basements with concrete so rats couldn't burrow. They filled in cesspools and patched broken pipes and walls. As for the rats themselves, Blue had to improvise. His men set hundreds of traps using cheese laced with poison. He also had a brand new weapon, the Donish virus. The active ingredient in the so-called virus was actually a bacterium, and it killed rats at an astounding rate. Thankfully, it was relatively harmless to humans. Jan Donish, the Polish researcher who discovered it, mixed the bacteria with cornmeal and fed it to vermin. They died within minutes. In addition, Blue advertised a rat bounty. Anyone who brought his team a rodent got a 10-cent reward, equivalent to $3 in today's money. However, Blue did worry that his anti-rat efforts would drive infected rodents away from Chinatown. These fears were confirmed in February 1904, when an entire family died of pneumonic plague in San Francisco's Latin Quarter. Blue sprang into action. He burned the victims' clothes and furniture in the street. He placed traps laden with the Donish virus. Then he visited all of the neighbors and injected them with the Hafkin vaccine. The outbreak ended there. Blue's campaign worked. Plague cases in San Francisco declined, and many believed the panic was finally over. But Yersinia pestis was more adaptable than they realized. 
More than a month after the Latin Quarter deaths, a young boy likely died of bubonic plague in the town of Moraga, 20 miles outside of San Francisco. His brother told Dr. Blue that several days earlier they had killed and eaten a squirrel. Blue found several dead squirrels in the area, their bodies teeming with plague. The demon had found a new host, and these animals were much faster than rats. They were also capable of traveling great distances. Blue feared that squirrels could form a chain of infection across the entire nation. Surgeon General Wyman wasn't as concerned. New cases were rare, and Wyman wanted to believe that the war was over. In early 1905, he congratulated Blue for a job well done. But the celebration was premature. In 1906, San Francisco was rocked by a massive earthquake and fires that destroyed 28,000 buildings. The devastation killed more than 3,000 people. It also displaced millions of rats who carried their fleas throughout the city. Blue suspected that a new outbreak would follow, and he was right. In May 1907, a seaman named Oscar Tomei died of bubonic plague. Ten weeks later, at least three more people in San Francisco developed the plague. In mid-August, multiple patients at a county hospital fell ill. Investigators found hundreds of rats in the basement and closed the infirmary. After several attempts to eradicate them, the city condemned the building. During the hot summer, millions of rats left their homes in search of food and carried the disease with them. Between May and September, San Francisco saw 25 new cases and 13 fatalities. The death toll was rising again, but this time Blue had the upper hand. The politicians who doubted Plague's existence in the past were either gone or staying silent. Governor Gage had been voted out. Mayor Schmitz was in jail for corruption. At long last, the city was ready to listen to scientists. Blue met with the city's Board of Supervisors and managed to fund $20,000 a month for a new sanitation campaign. That's about half a million dollars today. He even got the railroad companies to pitch in. Blue realized that the debris left over from the earthquake gave rats a place to hide. So he sent letters to every address in town. He urged citizens to do their part by removing garbage and rubble from the streets. He sent teams of rat catchers to exterminate as many rodents as possible. He also reinstated the rat bounty. He forced butchers and fruit sellers to stop dumping waste and threatened businesses that refused to comply. For support, he turned to the press. The same newspapers that once denounced the plague as a hoax now told citizens it was their duty to keep San Francisco clean. After the success of this cleanup campaign, Blue delivered more than 100 speeches, becoming a public icon. He spoke to packed auditoriums about the benefits of killing vermin and called it the noblest work you can do. Blue also came to realize why America's death count stayed so low, at least compared to the outbreaks in other nations. 
Carol Fox, one of Blue's researchers, discovered that the fleas found on San Francisco rats were a different species than the ones in Asia and India. Fleas are a diverse group of insects. A 1943 study in Public Health Reports identified 21 different species in the United States alone. However, one of the most common is the northern European rat flea, or Ceratophilus fasciitis. Fox dissected the insect under a microscope and compared it to the flea species responsible for the outbreaks in China and India, known as Pulex kiposis. Fox learned that infected P. kiposis rat fleas were more likely to bite humans than their northern cousins. This was due to a small ridge in their gut that caused a blockage of consumed blood after P. kiposis had fed. If the flea's initial victim was a carrier of the plague, then the flea was now a carrier of the disease as well. As the flea's gut became more blocked, it grew hungrier, meaning it was more likely to leave its rodent host and aggressively attack nearby humans. Moreover, when the flea bit a human and ingested new blood, some of the old infected blood in its gut would eject into its new victim. The northern European rat flea, which Fox found on his Californian rats, didn't have the same problem. They weren't as hungry for new hosts, and they ejected less material into their subsequent victims' bodies. Blue also learned that the positivity rate, or the percentage of infected rats, made a huge difference. Scientists in Manila tested rats for Yersinia pestis at the beginning of an outbreak. They observed that the number of human cases increased exponentially when 2% of the rats got infected. San Francisco's positivity rate was about 1.5%, but it was rising. Blue made sure his team did everything in their power to keep the rate below 2% to avoid an epidemic. Their efforts to clean up the city had an unanticipated bonus. In addition to plague, sanitation reduced the rate of other infectious diseases as well. San Francisco's overall mortality rate dropped by 15%. And as the life-saving benefits of vaccines became more perceptible, more people opted to receive them. Finally, in July 1908, San Francisco celebrated six months without plague. But as Blue predicted, the war wasn't over. Ranchers in Northern California called the authorities about dozens of sick or dead squirrels. These animals tested positive for Yersinia pestis. Blue started a campaign to eradicate the nearly 100 million squirrels living in California. However, the task was too ambitious to accomplish. The plague was in America and it wasn't going anywhere. The country had to learn how to live amongst it. In the next two decades, more scattered cases of plague appeared across the U.S. The last major outbreak happened in Los Angeles in October 1924. A day laborer named Jesus Lahoon fell ill with pneumonic plague and passed it to his entire family as well as many of his neighbors. After an autopsy of one of the victims, police quarantined the entire community, triggering a citywide panic. In the next month, 40 people died, all of them connected in some way to Lahoon. 
Today, plague is not the death sentence it used to be. The arrival of antibiotics like streptomycin ensures that most people survive the infection if it's caught early enough. The bacteria itself is now firmly rooted in various rodent populations throughout the southwestern United States. Despite that, only seven Americans contract plague each year. But that doesn't mean the threat is gone. A 2017 outbreak in Madagascar potentially infected as many as 2,348 people and killed more than 200 of them. Even more alarming, scientists recently identified multiple antibiotic-resistant strains of plague. If the trend continues, modern medicine may be powerless to stop the disease if it were to return. Meanwhile, the San Francisco outbreak feels like a distant memory, but its lessons could not be more relevant. For when greed and ignorance prevail over science and reason, the cost is measured in human lives. Thanks for listening to Medical Mysteries. For more information about the Black Death, we found Black Death at the Golden Gate, The Race to Save America from the Bubonic Plague by David K. Randall, and The Barbary Plague, The Black Death in Victorian San Francisco by Marilyn Chase to be extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Medical Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Medical Mysteries was written by Xander Bernstein, with writing assistance by Lori Gottlieb and Allie Wicker. Fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Brad Klein and Brian Petrus. Medical Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rosner. (laughs) 